when you have a reason to do something, when you have a reason to make something that's outside of make money and make it cool and get some cred and, and a reputation for yourself, then it's incredibly rewarding. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm going to send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I am here today with Oscar-winning editor Paul Rogers, who one could say is best known for cutting everything everywhere all at once. However, for the sake of today's conversation, Paul is quite possibly much better known for not just winning the Oscar, but also for the speech that he gave backstage afterwards, which is the inspiration for today's conversation. So on that note, Paul, we've already talked about this a little bit uh, offline, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to be here today. And boy, has it been a long time coming. So thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and your life experience with us. Well, I appreciate your patience. You know, I needed a few months to just recover mentally, psychologically. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. That's probably going to be the epicenter of today's conversation. So to, yeah. to frame it and give everybody a little bit of a spoiler alert up front, if you found this conversation thinking you're going to learn anything about the creative choices or the creative process for everything, everywhere, all at once, this is not the conversation that you are looking for. This is not the place. I'm gonna make sure I have links to all of the great conversations you've had with Art of the Cut or the Rough Cut. Like you've got a lot of really great conversations about the process. Um, and in, in some of those, there's just been these like little sidebars or tangents about the work-life balance process. And as soon as I heard one of those, I'm like that. That's the whole conversation for me. That's what I've been talking about for years and years and years. Um, and I remember the the meme going around is either the next day or the day after of kind of that that subsection of your speech behind the scenes. And as soon as I saw that, I had, I think, 15 people send it to me the same day. It's like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? I'm like, yes, I've seen it. Right. Because that's what I talk about all day, every right. day. And it was like, finally, 
somebody is at the highest level on the stage in front of the spotlight saying the exact same thing. So where I want to start, I'm just going to kind of quote that little meme. That's where I want to begin the conversation and then we can take it from a multitude of different angles. Um, but the place that I want to start is here's the kind of the, the little subset of your quote. And you said, there's a problem in our industry that the more you kill yourself for a movie, the braver you are. And that is bullshit. We can do our jobs and we can live our lives. And the more fully we are able to live our lives and the more humanely we treat ourselves and the people around us, the better that we can do our jobs. So as that framing the start of the conversation, what I'm actually curious about is how have things been, how have things been since the night you said that and becoming literally a quote unquote overnight success story and how things have changed? Uh well, I guess it depends on what uh, aspect of my life you're referring to. I mean, it, it's changed a lot, um, but also comfortingly, it hasn't changed a lot. You know, my work is still my work and I still have the same struggles and the same successes and and I, I still find the same joy in it. Um, there was definitely a period afterwards where there's a pressure that you feel to capitalize on whatever kind of exposure you have in the moment. and you know, the, the exposure of the Oscars is, I, I don't think I was even quite prepared. So you go through this kind of a uh, couple of maybe three, four months of various award shows. And some of them are, are small, some of them are big. Uh, the BAFTAs in London are basically the, the British American, or sorry, the British Academy Awards. And so I thought, you know, I, I've, I've kind of been through this. I know what it, what it feels like. And then the week or two after the Oscars was, was completely overwhelming um, and and really difficult uh, actually uh, to have that kind of exposure and to feel exposed and vulnerable in that way. And um, but you know, I think in some ways it's been really nice how quickly all of that goes away. I noticed like there's the news cycle has maybe three to four days, maybe a week at the most, and then they just kind of move on. And that happened to me. It was like an intense week after. And I just kind of went to hiding. I turned my phone on, do not disturb. I just stayed home. I didn't work. And it was still just this onslaught. And then a week later, it was like nothing had ever happened. And, um, you know, I have my family back in Alabama. It's like, are you getting recognized on the street? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no one recognizes me. No one cares. <laughs> Even if they do, they're like, hey, cool, great nice to meet you. You know, it's not, it's not like uh, these famous actors or actresses or even the directors out there. So that's been great and, and really, really nice. And I can just kind of get back to, to normal, get back to my family. Um, one thing that it has forced me to do, you know, I wasn't planning on saying anything about work-life balance. After, so if, if you win, you go up on stage, you give your speech, they, they start kind of shoving you around to different places backstage and one of the places they shove you is just like into this room with 50, 60 people sitting in, in at tables with little numbers and they hold them up. And I had no idea what I was going into. And so I went to that back room, not knowing that it was being video recorded. Uh, and they started asking me questions. And I thought, you know, this is like a small thing for these little tiny outlets and nobody will ever see or hear this. <laughs> and so it really surprised me when that went kind of viral for the small amount that it did a uh, small amount of time that it did. And, um, and yeah, I don't even remember what the question was, but I, I think I was in a mode 
where I was feeling so burnt out by just the awards process. And I was trying so hard to refocus on work-life balance um, that it just kind of came out. And so it's what it did was it forced me to, once I had said that out loud, that kind of became my reputation. So the jobs that I've taken since, it's much easier for me now to be like, I don't work nights and weekends. Uh, these are my boundaries. Um, and, you know, I, I, that is hard to do in, in this industry in particular because I made my name working nights and weekends. I also know that sometimes those late nights are really productive. Uh, and sometimes those weekends are really productive because you you get into a groove and it's hard to interrupt that. And so what it's given me more so than having extremely rigid boundaries is the ability to pick and choose when I want to push myself in those ways versus having that dictated to me and feeling helpless and not having any control over whether or not I say, you know what, I'm on a roll today. I, I want to work. I'm going to stick it out and work the night, you know? Um, so it, it's forced me to also transfer that to the people that work around me. It's not forced me. It's allowed me to, it's given me the gift of saying my assistant editor doesn't do that, you know, and I'm not great at that yet. <laughs> I'm trying to protect those around me even more. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, those are some of the changes. For me, boundaries is a really, really important subject to dive into. And I want to dive into that deeper. Um, and I'm going to put a pin in it for the second because I want to go uh, I want to go a little bit backwards before we go forwards. Uh, there's two areas that I want to go into, the first of which is understanding a little bit more about your journey and how you got to the point where you essentially won an Oscar for what's not technically your first feature. But for all intents and purposes, a lot of people in the media have been saying, oh, he won for his first movie. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit more about what it means to have achieved the success that you did so early so people really understand it. And when they're setting their career goals, they realize that it, it might not be the be-all, uh, end-all that they think it is. But let's start from a very, very um, you know, unassuming upbringing where you would never think, well, it's inevitable that Paul is, of course, going to be working in Hollywood and win an Oscar, right? Um, mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about the origin story. Okay. So you mean just like from the, the beginning, beginning? Yeah, from, I mean, I don't birth. even know how your parents <laughs> met or anything. But <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, like the, the, there's a, I think the there's a word that I have used for years and it's the way that people used to describe me. Whenever somebody would look at my resume, they're like, your career makes no sense. It's very scattershot. Mm. And you're very much in that category. And mm. I want people to understand how that can be of tremendous value because we think that, well, I have to be so specialized and I have to do one thing, but there's tremendous value and diversification of using your skills in different areas. Sure. So on the surface, let somebody could not plot a course and say, oh, of course it makes sense that Paul won an Oscar. So I want them to better understand the origin story and the value of how it got you into the place that you won the Oscar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I grew up with a, a mother who's an artist. She's a photographer. Uh, my father's a lawyer. They split when I was young. Um, so I was always exposed to art, um, photography very specifically. She had a great um, community of artists and, and photographers around her. She shared, shared a studio with a couple of really great women who were artists. Uh, and I, you know, my dad is a lawyer, so he's kind of a, a storyteller of sorts in, in terms of he's, his job is to craft some kind of compelling narrative to to win over a jury, even if it doesn't go in front of a jury, that's still kind of a part of the process. So 
you know, I, going into college, like, you know, end of high school, I guess, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had one side of me that said, I want to be a park ranger because I'd done this incredible uh, camping trip called Wilderness Ventures for six weeks the summer before. And then I was also, I had found this guy in my class that would, instead of writing a book report, he would make a, a movie with his camcorder. And it seemed like such a fun way to not do work. <laughs> uh, and so we would we would do that. And and he would get a, you know, it, he would make like a mafia movie, even though we were supposed to be writing a book report on some dry book. Uh, but because he put so much effort in and they were so well done, he would still get good grades. So I started kind of tagging along and helping with those. And I realized like this was the most fun and most engaged that I had been ever in any kind of uh process and by process i guess i mean something that required actual focus and work and time uh for the most part unless it was uh something you know one of my strange hobbies like skateboarding or breakdancing i couldn't do that for anything um so i you know i kind of pitched it to my dad and my mom i was like what if i went to school for film and my mom, of course, was like, hell yeah, you're an artist, you know. My dad just asked me, do you think you can support a family uh, with a film degree? And I had no clue. But of <laughs> course, I said, yeah, of course. I said, sure, go for it. Uh, and I was kind of surprised. Um, but I found a little school through a college advisor called College of Santa Fe in New Mexico. Went out there. It was really small, under 1,000 undergrad students, I think. And um, just dove in. And got really lucky. It was a strange school and you have to do everything. And, um, you know, you have to, we had to cut on um, film. So I cut on a, on a Steenbeck was the first short film I cut before we were allowed to use Final Cut, which was the standard those days. Before we were allowed to check out a, a video camera, we had to shoot on um, 16 and, and edit on 16. And that became like, I just realized through that process that I was like, that was the most fun part of the process for me. And yeah, just kind of like the school flew by for me. I met my wife out there. We moved to Brazil for a little bit, then back to Birmingham. Um, so just, you know, see how it would go. Stayed there for seven years on accident, really. Was expecting to move to a bigger market and just like, you know, bought a house when we were 24, got a dog got our 401k going. We're just like ready to ride it out, you know, uh, into old age. And I saw a short film by a director named Kolo Joseph called until the quiet comes went home and told my wife, like, I think I have to quit my job. I think I have to move to LA and find these people. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. And, um, came out here really with the focus to be an editor and, uh, never really had the desire to, to direct, but always had the ability to like jump in and help where, where needed because back then it was a lot of, you know, people getting their start out here or directing music videos or doing a kid's camp. And you're just kind of like running around and trying to do, you know, anything that can help. Um, but it was really focused on editing and, um, met some great guys named the Daniels at a roller rink started making stuff with them. And then, um, snowball, 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 you get everything everywhere all at once. You just yada yada all the best parts. So many, so many areas that I want to go into it. This is a really, really great start. Um, here's the, the first thing that I want to zoom into <clears throat> is when you said that I was 
just planning on riding it out, right? You found a ladder, you grabbed the bottom rung, you had your 401k, you had your house, you were all set and you were going to climb to the top. And that was it. You were going to ride it out to old age, right? That's the old model. That's Mm -hmm. what we're taught. We're supposed to do it that way, right? And then you saw this music video and you said, I have to quit my job and I have to find these people. There's a big difference between that looks cool. I wish I could do that. And let's sell the house. Let's quit our jobs. Let's move to LA and let's do it. Mm -hmm. How did you bridge that gap? Because there are so many people that see their version of that music video. They have that moment, whether it's a TV show, whether it's a trailer, whatever it might be. How cool would it be to do that someday? But then they never actually do it. What was the difference between that looks cool and this is what we're going to do? Well, like, how did you how did you listen to your intuition and overcome all of those fears? Yeah, I think it's a variety of factors. I mean, I can't discount the the incredible privilege that I had in that I had no college debt. I I received some scholarships and some grants um, to go to college, and then my father paid for about half of my tuition. Um, so that's huge. I had a wife with a full time job who said, "Go, and I will keep working just in case it doesn't work out." And um, and I'm a white guy. And so I could walk into, I, I literally was just cold walking into production companies and saying, Hey, I want to work here. I want to be an intern. And all the other interns were, you know, film as young white dudes. We always kind of joke. It's like white guys with beards like me, you know, like <laughs> a little shortcut beard. And so I, I fit in and, and, um, and so those things I can't discount and just say, Oh, you just got to be brave and, go for it and dive in with no parachute. Like I had those three huge parachutes behind me. Um, And I had a little bit of savings um, because I didn't have any college debt. I was able to save some money up by through the the years of working at my other job. So those were huge because the, the fear of failure wasn't a fear of complete failure. It was a fear of coming back to my beautiful wife and beautiful home in Alabama with my tail tucked between my legs, which is not that big of a deal in the, in the big picture. Um, and in general, I just like, I think I reached a point where I, that, that film until the quiet comes made me realize why I had gotten into art and why I had gotten into film in the first place, which is to create something um, that can move people on a level that is indescribable in any other art form. Uh, it's not the same as, a, as you know, and I, I've been moved by beautiful photographs and beautiful music and beautiful writing, but never the same way that I've been moved by film, by the moving image. And it demonstrated that power so potently that it was hard for me to ignore that I wasn't doing that at the moment. Uh, and I loved the work I was doing, but I wasn't, I wasn't putting everything into it. Um, and I had, speaking of work-life balance, like I worked 10 to five and, uh, I took an hour, hour and a half lunch <laughs> and anchors hours and minutes away from my house. And it was great. I was, had the best work-life balance I've ever had, but I wasn't, I wasn't happy just having the work-life balance. I needed the the kind of meaning of work and the meaning of life to also be balanced and and they were they were out of whack at that point so it sounds like you were in a place that i think a lot of people end up which is that you were very comfortable 
And what you discovered is that there's a lot missing from comfort. And you decided I wanted to be as uncomfortable as humanly possible because you were chasing meaning. You were chasing something that was more your calling and the work that you really wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what one of the things that I know that you mentioned in uh, I don't remember specifically which interview, but this idea that working in Alabama in public TV taught you that you want to do work that does good for the world. So I, I really, I really want to start breaking. I want to break down sure. meaning, work-life balance. Like this is so much more than just what's the career path. Who did you meet? How did you get in the room? How did you get your Oscar? There's so much, so many deeper layers. So talk to me about finding meaning in your work. Yeah, I got lucky in that I the first job I got out of school was as an editor for public television. I was surprised that I got it. You know, I had no experience, but I don't think there were a lot of people walking around Birmingham in those days with film degrees. And so when the job came up, I wasn't passionate about public television and the mission of public television, but I was passionate about filmmaking, about editing. And, and so I, you know, I was so excited and I dove in and I, I, you know, one of the first things I learned there was like, this is mission-based filmmaking. Our mission is to educate. Our mission is to educate fairly and in a balanced way and to provide a public service. And that was eye-opening for me. I didn't even know that was what public television was about. I just knew it was where Sesame Street was and and you know some of the funny like old jazz shows would show there. And uh you know, I'm learning that it's completely, you know, basically completely publicly funded with some funding from the state. So that taught me that when you have a reason to do something, when you have a reason to make something that's outside of make money and make it cool and get some cred and, and a reputation for yourself, that it's incredibly re rewarding. Um, you know, the stories that we were telling, Alabama has like a, a, a crazy and varied history. Some of it really interesting and great. Some of it really terrible. And we were trying to tell all of that. Um, through documentary and it was challenging it was hard it was could be heartbreaking it could be so cool to discover some of the good parts of our state so sobering to discover really some of the dive deeper into the history um and i i loved it and i love the people i worked with and that kind of work attracts a certain type of person so when i came to la I kind of reset myself and just said, I want to do cool work. I want to make stuff that people watch that's that's popular, that's funny, that you know, and uh, and I want to make some money. And I did some really fun stuff and um and I, I slowly started realizing that I would I had drifted kind of a little bit far away from like um doing the type of work that I could be hundred percent proud of. And that when that really came to a head for me was I was working on a music video and I remember I was so excited. It was like these big artists and I didn't ask to listen to the song. I just said, of course I'll do it. Like let's get started. And when I got the song and I started, I got the footage for the video. I realized like it was just kind of gross. It was a gross message. It was about like trading sexual favors for money. <laughs> I was just like, God, I don't think that I don't want my teenage little sister to Google me 
and for this to come up because it was going to be it was a popular song and it was going to be popular and and I just didn't want that to happen and so I said look I'm going to finish the video I don't want my name anywhere near this thing I don't want to put it on my reel I don't want you to put it in the credits and um, it has nothing to do with how I feel about you and your talents as a director or the production company. I just think that the message of this song is, is terrible. Um, and that woke me up to saying, okay, maybe I can be more discerning about what I'm doing and, and who I'm doing it with and why I'm doing it. And, um, and it's not a hundred percent of the time. I mean, you know, we have, I'm a partner in a company called Parallax and, and we have to, we have not just bills to pay, but we have employees that depend on the company and, and we need to do work that pays their salaries. Um, so, you know, but we do have our standards and we don't take work that we feel like is actively contributing to the world in a negative way. Uh, and we, we seek out work that is positive for the world. and. Um, and, you know, we've definitely missed opportunities and missed jobs and things that have been big, but we've never regretted it because there's a, a very clear line about what we're trying to do. And we're not turning stuff down arbitrarily. We're, there's a, a reason in that having a, a, a strong, you know, we talked about boundaries, having these, even these boundaries about what type of work you will take and what type of work you won't take um, is really freeing to never live in a place of regret and looking backwards and saying, should I have done that? You know, it's, it's, it becomes fairly cut and dry in a nice way. Yeah. And uh, in order for all those things to happen, whether it's knowing the work that you should or shouldn't take, knowing how to set a boundary when you shouldn't, when it's worth it to do the nights and weekends, I feel like one of the most important things you need to be in touch with, which is the polar opposite of how things work in this industry. It's very clear that you're in touch with your values. You have a sense of these are what my values are. These are the lines that I'm not willing to cross. And mm -hmm. it's, I had the weirdest flashback when you were telling the story about the music video, because one of my biggest existential crises in this industry was very similar to yours, where I was working on Empire season two, and I spent my entire day going through a B-roll of strippers in a strip club with uh, one of the main characters getting drunk in a strip club and basically all of them fawning all over him in this music video saying, do it for the gram, do it for the gram. Mm -hmm. I still to this day cannot get that saying out of my head because I just looked at the dailies and I just stopped. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? Like, yeah, what yeah. am I doing? Right. And it's no coincidence that two weeks later I left. It's the only mm -hmm. job I've ever left. I said, this, this is just, and it, this is the number one show on television. Yeah. It was literally the number one show on network television at the time. And I said, this is so in misalignment with who I am and the stories that I want to tell. And I just felt it in my gut, like yeah. driving home at night. I would feel it driving to the job in the morning. I would feel it. I'm like, this is not who I am. And I've reached what most people thought was the pinnacle of my career. But at the same time, emotionally, just at rock bottom. And it yeah. sounds like you had a similar experience. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found 
bringing in this cushion terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So I think it's important too to, to realize that those boundaries and those lines are different for everybody. And that just because you... that that was not what you wanted that story that you wanted to tell doesn't mean that someone else could could find a reason to say look i this is a commentary on this lifestyle that i feel like is was worthwhile and that was how i felt about what i was doing too i'm not you know i don't i didn't want to pass judgment on the people around me who were making the thing i just didn't want to be a part of it you know i just didn't want to go to the party that they were inviting me to and that's fine and they can have the party it's hard to just set for me it was hard to to just land in la hungry for work and be saying like, here's the exact type of work I want to be doing. And here are the values that I have. And here's what I'm going to turn down. Here's what I'm going to take. It was hard for me, but I I think I should have done that. (laughs) And in some ways, like you got to, you know, the pay your dues thing is real. Like you got to just get some work under your belt. And, but if you can be a little bit discerning, I think it helps because what I've noticed is when I'm hiring people now, I do some, in some ways, take into account the type of work that they've been doing, not just the quality of work that they've been doing. And I think it's like meeting a, a friend or or being able to tell that someone has um, just a similar sensibility and a similar outlook on life. And those are the people I want to work with because the work that we do, especially as editors, is like really sensitive. You know, we're all kind of really sensitive people, I think, editors and emotional and easily, uh, you know, easily brought down by what we're working on or easily excited by what we're working on. And so if I'm going to trust someone to sensitively treat, especially the type of work that I tend to be drawn to and that I tend to work on, if I'm going to trust someone to sensitively treat the subject matter that I feel like is really important, then I need, I need to know that their outlook and their values are it's somewhat similar. Now, that being said, I think it's really valuable to work with a, a diverse group of outlooks and a diverse group of people. So I do 
recognize that sometimes my values are different than someone else's values, but I still can find a way to respect and and um, uplift those people as well because just because their values are different than mine doesn't mean they're wrong, right? And it can be really valuable to have someone in there that's challenging you because one of the things that happens in this work and when you're trying to kind of like get your workflow down and get the, you know, and, and, and things start moving and you're trying to kind of optimize the way that you do things and move through projects is you start getting into these patterns. Okay. This is the way I do things because it worked on the last project. So I'm going to do it on this project and I'm just going to do it. And then I can just like do four things at once. And what you do is you don't realize that those patterns are, are one, they're limiting you creatively, but two, they're also like, they're solidifying these values that should be, I think, you know, in some ways, I think our values should be able to shift and grow as our life experience shifts and grows as new input comes in, as we get older, as we have more experiences, as we meet more people, we should be able to say, wait, I need to reevaluate the way that I've been feeling and thinking about this thing. And and maybe form a new opinion about it and maybe maybe shift this value into a place that's more in line with with my heart or that's more in line with uh you know with the world you know so that's those are those are some of the kind of caveats that i have about like only making decisions based on my values is that as much as it might we might want to think that our values should always stay the same and rock solid like that's just not i don't think that's reality yeah, I agree. I mean, values are going to be ever changing. I think that there are some core values that they're just not going to change. Like an example would be from everything that you're saying. I don't think I'm ever going to convince you that you need to change the value that you believe diverse voices are important. And this is a really important one to bring up because this was another part of your speech that kind of went out there, but it wasn't nearly as big as the work-life balance was the need for other diverse voices. Mm -hmm. And I say this because anybody coming into the beginning of today's conversation without any context, they're like, boy, he's really playing that white guy with a beard card. We need to make it very, very clear how much you've talked about the value of bringing in diverse voices and how you don't believe everybody standing up on the stage holding the gold statue should look like you. You literally said as much. So what, would you agree that there's probably no amount of changing your belief or your the, the the fact that you value diverse voices? That to me seems it's a core value embedded in you or treating sure. people with respect. That's a core value. But then there are other values that can certainly change as you're exposed to more diverse experiences. Sure. People. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I think that's true. There's, you know, kindness and this uh, kindness is not a value that I think I'm going to change, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think you're right. And I, and I do think, you know, as much as like, it's literally, it is literally the least thing, I, the least that I can do. And I'm saying this in a way of like, it's not, it doesn't, it wasn't much for me to say, hey, did you guys all notice that it's all white guys winning most of these awards? And that didn't, that didn't feel like it was going to be some viral moment. It felt more like uh, something we all already understood. So it surprised me that that went viral. And it also was like, you know, embarrassing, but I just didn't, it was like, it's literally the least effort I could have put forward to, to doing anything is just to, to point that out. Um, because, you know, there's like so much more important work to be done and, and, um, and people who are, who are doing so much more for that versus just like, spouting some stuff off into a microphone while they're holding a statue. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's very clear that you are, you and I are on the same page that there's an immense value in bringing in a lot more diverse voices. And just the, it really surprised me 
at just the, the more that I learned about the politics of the industry and the culture of the industry, it just seemed like a no brainer. It's like, why wouldn't we want more diverse voices? We're storytellers, right? You want to bring in female voices and minority voices. It just seems like a dumb moment, but then you understand how the industry and so is so entrenched in the way that it is. It really kind of blew me away that, like you said, there's so much more work to be done. And there are a lot of people that are doing that work. And, you know, like you said, it's like, they're, I'm the one that goes viral. Like what, well, what's the point yeah, of that? I mean, right? it goes, it's not just in the industry. It goes back to the education systems, the type of people mm -hmm. that are graduating that are able to graduate with a film degree because graduating with a film degree is a huge risk. It's not graduating with a degree in business or, or something that's a little bit more dependable that you can find good work. And um, the people who are able to take those risks are the people who are incredibly financially stable and supported by their families and have been their whole lives and will be for the rest of their lives. And so it becomes this thing where it it is the majority of, you know, like I said, when I got my internship, it was like all guys that looked like me, all of us, we, you know, we could, people would confuse our names all the time. <laughs> it happens everywhere. And so that's, I think it's not just like an industry problem. It's like a more of a society cultural problem. And yeah, it's just, it's such a bigger issue than, filmmakers are all white dudes it's it's kind of just like the leaders of of industry in general in america tend to be white guys because we're allowed and supported and encouraged to take risks without much of a consequence if we fail you know in fact it's just seen as like masculine to do that mm. as as like that's a really great trait to fail and that's not the same for my wife growing up you know, it's not the same for other people, you know, throughout the country. So I'm curious, given all of this, let's rewind. Let's go back to, you've got your 10 to five job, very comfortable, 401k, you see the same music video, mm -hmm. but you don't have all your parachutes. What would you have done then if you were really depending on that paycheck and you didn't have the, the advantages that you talked about? Yeah, I mean, I probably would have just stuck it out. Uh, and And... I don't think I would be unhappy if I stuck it out. Honestly, I think I, I, I was really happy and I, I love my life and I love my friends and I was near my family. Um, and you know, I've had these moments even recently going back home and being with my family as they're, you know, getting older and thinking like, should I have, should I have done that? Should I have just stayed here? And like, how much closer would I be with my family? What would my children's relationship be with their grandparents and their great grandparents that they're missing out on because I felt the need to to go do this thing for myself, really, you know, basically hundred percent selfishly, I want to express this part of myself and I'm going to drag you with me, wife. Um, and uh, yeah. So there's, there's always these periods of wondering, despite the kind of like success that I've had out here, if it was the right choice, in a more big picture holistic way for me and my family and the people around me. It's really interesting you bring this up because I didn't know if we were gonna get to this or not, um, but I stumbled upon a quote recently that really hit me deep. And I think this is the perfect place to use it. It's been sitting around forever. I'm like, when am I gonna be able to bring this up? This is the exact moment. It's a quote from Matt Damon from the night uh, that he won his Oscar, won it for Goodwill Hunting at age 27, right? So he wins the Oscar. He goes home after all the craziness that you experienced. He sat down on the sofa and this was the thought that he had. And I want to get your thoughts on this. To some, There are a few that can empathize with this. You can empathize with it, right? 
So holding the Oscar, he says, imagine chasing this and not getting it and finally getting to your 80s or your 90s with all of life behind you and realizing what an unbelievable waste of life that it was because it can't fill you up. If that's a hole that you have, this thing isn't going to fill it. Yeah. Having now won it and thinking about what life is like going back home, now that you can say I'm an Oscar winner, what are your first thoughts listening to that quote? Yeah, I mean, it definitely resonates. I think that it, I can't, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because I, I was very much not chasing it and not because I was too cool for it, but because it was just so beyond the realm of possibility in my head for where my career was going and the type of work that I was interested in. That when it happened, it was so unexpected and strange and I hadn't built it up at all. So, you know, people will ask me like, why were you so calm? And, and it's because I had never imagined myself on the stage. So I had nothing to try to live up to. And I had no feeling of this is the moment you've been waiting for. I just had the feeling of like, I can't believe why, you know, there's so look at all these other people that deserved it. So yeah, I can't imagine chasing that for my whole life and not getting it. And because you do realize that like it's sitting, you know, it's the statue sitting over there. I, I, no one looks at it or cares in my family. Like my, you know, my son was like, I was like, I want to, uh, I want to, I went to a fancy office party and I won a work award because people think that I did a good job at work and they gave me like a statue of a guy and he was like, cool, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it does, to the people that matter to you, it doesn't matter. And the people that it does matter to just don't know you. It's not that they're bad people thinking that it's really important, but, but it just so fundamentally doesn't change a thing about who you are and how happy you are and the relationships that you have just fundamentally does not change a single thing about that, that I can't, like, like you said, I can't imagine chasing that for your whole life. What I think is important to double down on is that it didn't change anything at all for you. However, I think it does change a lot of people and usually mm -hmm. not for the good, it's usually for the worse. And I just go back to, I think the reason that you had this reaction is you're so clear on who you are. You know your values. You know that you're a mission-based filmmaker. And this is, it's this thing that happened. And sure, I'm, you know, a lot of good things have probably come from it. A lot of craziness has come from it. But I would venture to guess, not knowing you at all, other than the 50 minutes that we've talked to each other, the reason you're saying the Oscar didn't change anything is because you already knew who you were. That could be true. I mean, I'm definitely still working on that. Aren't we sure. all? I mean, <laughs> it, it, this is a work in progress for all of us, myself included. Yeah. Um, but I do think also... You know, one of the surprising things that happened through everything was there's this kind of like net worth of love in your life, right? That you like let in and that you give out, right? And it's this big bubble around you. And I think the expectation is when something like this happens, that that bubble increases because there's more love coming in from the world, right? And so the bubble just gets bigger and you feel it. And what happened to me, and I'm not sure if this is what happens to everybody, but what happened to me was it actually shrank, strangely, because a lot of the attention that I started to get and the people that were reaching out that I hadn't heard from in so long, some of it was very real, like, hey, I haven't talked to you in years. So excited for you. Just wanted to give you good vibes and, and warm wishes. And I love that stuff. But some of it's like, hey, we should hang out. We should totally, I, I haven't talked to you in seven years, but now that you're on TV, like we should totally hang out. Also, I'm looking for work and, you know, and that kind of stuff starts to, you start to put 
walls up and fences up. And so what happens when you start to put those walls and fences up is that some of those real, some of that real love that's coming in also gets blocked because you're scared. You don't want to let the wrong ones in. And so I started finding myself suspicious of people that I shouldn't be suspicious of in terms of what were their intentions? Do they want some? Because what happens in those four or five months is that 90% of the people who contact you want something. And I don't just mean friends and, and acquaintances. I mean, you know, just professionally. They want an interview. They want a quote. They want a picture. They want this. They want that. They want to put you in touch with their kid who just graduated film school because they need a job. And, you know, and, and I understand all of that. And all these people, the journalists, they have their their jobs. They're just trying to do their jobs. But it took a minute for me to realize, and with the help of my publicist, Katie DeSabato at EBcoms, I don't have to do any of that. It's not for me. Unless my goal is to raise my visibility and to raise my value in, in the quote-unquote market, then I don't have to do any of it. It's just me doing favors for people. All the interviews. And some of them, you know, early on, I was doing all the interviews because I wanted to hype up the movie because I was just worried. You know, we were all like, we want people to watch the movie. What if no one watches the movie? What if no one goes to see it? And I wanted to also shout out everybody who had worked with me. And then like, once I felt like I'd done that, it gets to a point where you just think to yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this 40th interview? If it's not, if it, if I don't feel the need to increase my visibility, then what's the point? And so, you know, Katie gave me the like strength to just say no to everything basically. And, and, you know, I think I did four or five interviews in, in the month or two leading up to the Oscars versus the 60 that, that were presented, you know? So anyways, all that to say is that I, I found myself shrinking into myself as a form of protection. And I regret that, you know, but I also realized that it was necessary for me to mentally and emotionally survive that period of time in my life. Yeah, and that just comes back to the foundation of what we're talking about, which is learning how to set boundaries, right? Yeah. And I want to talk about that a little bit further, this idea of setting boundaries. And I want to do it in a slightly different context, because I think this will apply to the choices that you've made in your career. My guess is that it applies to how you build your team and who you hire, and it applies to setting boundaries. And it's this idea of following your intuition and listening to your gut. This is something that I've talked about on the show a lot lately, actually talking to like some of the world's experts and scientists to actually understand what does it mean to have a gut feeling? Where does it come from? How is the mind connected to the body, like from a physiological perspective? You don't need to understand any of that. But I feel like just through the experience of making this film alone, because it's very existential and goes you know, so deep in just understanding who we are in our existence, I'm curious if you see the same thread that I do, that through your entire career, the choices that you've made, the people you've surrounded yourself with, and the boundaries you set, how much do you feel that following gut instinct is a part of this? It's actually, it's, I think about this a lot because I feel like in my work specifically, a big part of what I learned how to do when I came out here was kind of like tuning the instrument that is the gut feeling, just like having that tuned to a place where you recognize it and then can act on it. I think I learned a lot of that from uh, Luke Lynch, who was the editor of that film that I watched that got me to move out here. So he, when I, watched that short film, I looked him up, found him, came out, met with him. And now, and he started a company called Parallax. And now that's the company that I'm a part of. And he's, he basically mentored me in a way of, of 
just knowing when something is good and knowing when something's bad, knowing when it's working, when it's not working, not just in filmmaking, but also in a way of just ways of working, ways of carrying yourself as a professional, ways of making decisions. If someone was just giving bad vibes on the team of not working with them, you know, of recognizing when someone has good vibes through trial and error. I mean, I think he and I both have made good decisions and bad decisions throughout the way. Um, but I do think that the, a big part of my work is just being like knowing, trusting my gut to say this is good and this is working or this is not good and this is working. And I'm just going to keep experimenting until I find a way to make it feel right in my body. And it is kind of like a weird body feeling that you get. Um, so yeah. So I, I do think that the gut, you know, it's like when I watched that film, <laughs> I was doing a panel thing. And they asked me, like, what was it about that film that moved you so much about Until the Quiet Comes? And I was like, I've never even tried to explain that. And I don't know if I can. Like, it's so beyond words to me that it's like, how, you know, <laughs> what, what would you even say? Uh, and the whole point of it was that it was like, moved me in a way that that I couldn't with with words. So all that being said... I think from the very beginning, what brought me out here to LA was just this gut feeling of like that. I, that's what I want and that's what I need. And these are the people that I want to surround myself with. And it paid off really well. And one of the nice things about it is that I work with these people now and um, intimately and daily. And I, I never like doubt their intentions ever. All the decisions that we make and, and that they make, like, even if I disagree with a particular decision, I don't doubt the intention behind it. You know, I just trust these people. And that's like, I can't imagine going through this, specifically this industry, but any industry just surrounded with people who you're constantly second guessing and, and worrying if they're a threat to your survival professionally or personally and, and what are their intentions. Like, I just can't imagine doing that. It sounds exhausting. There's already so much it's exhausting about my work and my life that not having to worry about that is, uh, is bliss. Yeah. And, uh, you, you live in a very, very small community where that isn't a problem because the vast majority of the entire industry, that's exactly what it is, right? Yeah. It's all about, I'm competing with you. Your intent is that you're trying to get ahead of me. And, you know, we're, we're, we chat at the, the lunchroom table and we enjoy each other's company and talk about the movies that we enjoy. Right. But secretly, it's like, they're trying to take my job. They're trying to get the showrunner's attention or they're going to get the director's next gig. And I'm not, it's yeah. just, it's just, it's like you said, it's so exhausting. And it's no wonder that everybody in our industry is either burned out or they're burned out and they don't know it. Like there's, I did yeah, a conversation true. with Greg McEwen and he, one of the most, like the, of all the mic drop moments I've ever heard, this one was just jaw dropping. He's like, there are two kinds of people in the world, those that are burned out and those who know they're burned out. And I was like, like if that doesn't just describe our industry and it's yeah. so much more than just the hours, that's a big part, all the exploitation, that's a big part. But what you just said it's exhausting. It's the mental load. Constantly feeling like you're, you're under threat. And it's not even that you're under threat for your job. I mean, that's a big part of it. But your ideas are constantly being attacked. Right? It's because, true. And, and it, yeah, go ahead. No, go, you go ahead. But I do, I feel like it, there's, there's just kind of the threat to the, to the, to your sense of self and your sense of value and to your ego, which is, you know, we have to contend with, I think, when we're doing anything. 
some of that can be mitigated through work on yourself, right? Through therapy and just accepting that like my work, my value as a person is not directly represented by the work that I do or my value as a person is not directly represented by the work that I do being accepted by the people around me as good, quote unquote good. And I do like, I'm very competitive. And when I work with people, I am, I am incredibly aware of the level of work that they're doing and whether or not I feel as subjective as it is, I'm living up to the level that, that they are working at. Um, but I think that that can be fun. If, if, if it's good vibes and there's trust built, then that can, competition is like at its best is killer it's so fun to say we're just constantly pushing each other in a healthy way in a positive way of saying look i you know i know i can do better than this i don't know you could do better than what you just showed me like get back in there and let's let's come back together in an hour and see what we can do because i've seen you know i can tell you didn't quite didn't quite nail it you know and they say the same thing to me i love that um but like you what you said like that that threat to your sense of of self is is more destructive than the threat to your job i think because it carries through for the rest of your life it can i mean i have those moments in my memory bank you know of like that time when i i put myself out on a limb and i got destroyed for it professionally where I thought something was great and I put my all into it and I got laughed at those things don't go away and you, you can learn to, to deal with them and process them, but like they stick with you. And, um, and what it requires is, is you just be around people who are also looking out for you, you know, and it's not that hard to do. We all know when we're saying something that's going to hurt somebody, we know it, even the, the most clueless of us, we can feel it. And we just have to not, sometimes we just, we just do it accidentally. And sometimes we do it on purpose and we don't even know why we're doing it. <laughs> we're like, I'm going to put this person in their place. I don't know why I just said that. And I regret it. And I can see that it hurt them. And what, you know, there's, there's no solution for that except for to go to them and say, Hey, I'm sorry. I said that, you know, and I shouldn't have said it in front of whoever shouldn't have said it period. You're super talented, you know, and I've had a couple of those moments and I've had to contend with like, geez, what, dark part of myself wanted me to to say that to that person you know um but you don't get a lot of that out here you don't get a lot of the backpedaling <laughs> and but i've had some really great ones like modeled to me from the top i remember i was working with a guy on a show and i was an intern in the show with he was the star of the show and we we're in the edit and, and i you know we were trying to crack some some joke and i said something like he was like telling me to do something. I was like, yeah, but I, you know, it's, the joke is funny because da, 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 you know, X, Y, Z. And he was like, I know why the joke is funny. Like it's, I said, I, I wrote the joke and then, you know, kind of like walked out and I was like, okay, fair enough. And then like five minutes later, he walked in and he was like, Hey, you know, I realized that I, I said that in a way that was like pretty shitty. Shouldn't have said that. Like, you know, I know you're just doing your best and you're working hard and we're just thinking through this together. So I'm sorry about that. And I was like, one, I didn't even think twice about it, but two, like that kind of modeling of, of humility was really inspiring for me because he didn't need to do that to the intern. He did need to do that. If you think about it in terms of life, but in the industry, 
he's not set up with the expectation to treat an intern like that, you know? Um, so that kind of stuff, I think I've been lucky to, to work and on almost all my jobs in LA on all, almost all of them. I've had that kind of, of leadership from when I was a baby out here, you know? Can you imagine the industry we'd work in if we changed one thing and it was the people took responsibility for their words and their actions? How different yeah. would this industry be if we changed <laughs> just that, right? I mean, I'm seeing like the people that I work with do. Dan and Daniel, that is them to a T, you know? Uh, I think the amount of like self-aware, you know, I wonder if it has anything to do with just like this generation of people not being afraid of therapy and not being afraid of talking about their feelings the way that our parents were afraid of those things. Um, because I have, I have been impressed. And even in the younger generations, like the amount of times that they will just, you know, firmly, but gently and kindly bring up like, Hey, I think that this is a, this situation is not optimal. I think that you could be handling this better. And, not, and, and, you know, it takes a, a second for me to not feel threatened by that. Right because we're so used to like, just like defense mode. And it's, but it's encouraging to me that like the younger generations are able to do that and they feel safe doing that. And they feel like they have the right to do that, you know? I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So this is going to tap into where I want to go to next, this idea of our generation or coming generations being more open to understanding feelings in the mind and psychology. I want to go back to something you talked about a few minutes ago, which is that it wasn't just a matter of I follow gut feelings. It was that you learned how to train your intuition. And one of my biggest pet peeves, and this is not just with editors, this is with people that do creative work. If they're on a panel, if they're in an interview and somebody asks about the craft and ultimately it's 10 different variations of the same answer. I don't know. I just trusted my gut. It's like, but that's not helpful. Like, how, how do I actually cultivate it? And you're somebody that I, it sounds like you've actually learned how to cultivate and improve your ability to feel the right things at the right time and into it. So how are you cultivating your intuition? 
I mean, it's so, that's such an interesting question. And I'm going to just stumble through an answer that I've never tried to get before. I do think a lot of it has to do with starting to become uh, comfortable in a space of vulnerability, meaning that you're, you are willing to confidently, not even confidently, but just put your ideas forward in a room. So it started off really simply, right? When I was on a show called The Eric Andre Show, I was an intern, then I was an assistant, and then I became an editor. We would all sit around and watch cuts together and react and talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, what we thought needed to be happening. And as an intern, you're just you just soak it in, right? And you have these feelings, but you're afraid to, to put them forward. But they want them. And the 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 space in which that show was made was very open to input from anyone. And so there were times where I would say, where I would have a feeling, but I would think to myself, I think if I say this, that will be more in line with what one of the directors or what Eric or one of the editors would actually think. So I'm going to say that thing instead. And inevitably, almost inevitably, whenever I would say that thing, it would be wrong because I would have a gut feeling that I was working against. And so it took me doing that a lot and then starting to say, I'm just going to say the thing that I feel, even though I might not know how to put it, I might be totally off base, but at least I'm going to just give it a shot and see like, because the other stuff I'm doing isn't working. Me trying to say things that I think other people will agree with is not working well for me. Um, And so I just started spouting out, you know, within limits, not just constantly, just saying the things that I thought, the weird gut feelings that I thought like, I don't know, like maybe if, what if we did this? And it was met with like, even when they disagreed with me, it was met with uh, a, such support in terms of just like, that's an interesting idea. And I found that more often than not, like my ideas weren't that bad. Maybe they were unrefined and maybe they were you know, oversimplified, or maybe the solution that I was trying to pitch was wrong, but the problem that I was seeing was right, you know, Um, that I started thinking like, I guess my gut isn't so off. And it also went back to something that the director I worked with told me once where I had spent days with this person trying to craft something that I thought that they would like in their style. And they were kind of like leaning over me at the at the computer one day watching something and it was just bad and it wasn't working. And because I was just trying to like emulate their past work. And they said, Don't make something you think I would like. Just I just want you to make something that you like, that you find interesting. And it doesn't if, if I come and watch it, it doesn't matter. I just want you to do that for the next day. And I did that. And when they came and watched it, they were like, finally, yes, that's good. Now we're getting somewhere. And that these like, so, you know, I did have a supportive environment of like being able to, being able to express myself and get into that vulnerable space. Because every time you, you know, it's, this industry is weird because it's, I guess it's every industry, but ideas are kind of a form of, I won't say currency, but just fuel. And so every time you put one of your ideas out there, like you're very vulnerable that you're just going to get like, it's like you're opening yourself up and you're just going to get people stabbing you if, if, 
if they think your idea is bad, then you're bad and you're a bad person and you should just go home. Why did you even come out here in the first place? And maybe you shouldn't be an editor and you should just go back being a park ranger. Those are like the feelings that you have in your head. <laughs> and um, That was very specific. I have a sense you've heard that voice once yeah, or twice. totally, totally. <laughs> and um, so that, if there's any way that I could express, that was the, that was my experience in learning to trust my gut. And I think there's probably a million ways to do it. And there's hopefully a lot of people who've learned to do that earlier in life starts even back in like college when we had to do our, you know, our, our critiques of other students' work and me trying to say things that I thought the professor would be impressed by versus me trying to say things that I thought might help the student. You know, they're different. And you have to just stop trying, trying to say things that will resonate with someone versus trying to say things that will push the work forward or that will actually like express you know, scratch some itch that you are trying to get to in, in the work. Cause uh, like all we're trying to do in this job and in any job is just do good work, you know, like that's all that really matters. As long as the work gets better, it doesn't really matter how many bad ideas you do and you spout out as long as one of them is good and pushes it forward. You know, that's how I always try to think about it is like when I sit down to edit, I'm going to spend a day or two doing really bad work. And then all I got to do is like one good thing and then, okay, now we're set forward and then 200 bad things, another good thing. Okay. Now we're two steps forward and just keep doing that. And hopefully over time, train myself to not do 200 bad things, but maybe 10 bad things. And then one good thing and maybe five bad things. And then one good thing, you know, yeah, one could say that's a pretty good metaphor for living your entire life outside the timeline. Yeah. Um, I mean, hopefully not doing really bad things and then one good thing in <laughs> no, my life. But as far as like, you know, making decisions and it being the wrong one and, you know, learning from your mistakes, like you're, yeah, you're not sure. going to make every choice correctly. Um, but the the one component of this that I think is really important to really point out to people is that you're mentioning that you were able to develop your intuition by learning how to follow your gut instincts and share those ideas. But I think one of the most important factors here was that you worked with people that believe the best idea wins. Not mm. everybody believes that. And for me, that's a very conscious conversation that I have in job interviews is I want to know what kind of people I'm dealing with. And I've always believed from the beginning of my career that if I'm working on something, and as I'm sure you can attest to as a fellow editor, you get into this headspace of, well, nobody knows the material better than I do. I've watched yeah, all the dailies and sure. I know these are all the right choices. And earlier in my career, I would get stuck in that mindset. But then the, the analogy that I've always used is let's say that I'm working late at night and my door's open. The janitor comes by with their cart and they pop their head in. They're like, that'd be better as a close up instead of a wide shot. Yeah, right. Yeah. One mentality is uh, shut up. You're the janitor. The other yeah. mentality is, oh, shit, this would be better as a close up. Thank you. Right. Yeah, and yeah. for me, if I'm not around people where the best idea wins, I don't feel that sense of trust and I can't be vulnerable. And then it is about, well, what do they want to hear just because I want to avoid a conflict and I don't want to look stupid. And it sounds like you were surrounded by people that believed the best idea wins. Yeah. And I think that that also is a product of on some level, trusting my gut about who I want to be around. I found that 100% of the times that I've taken an opportunity or a job because it checks some boxes or it meets some arbitrary criteria of these people are successful. This is a big show like you working on Empire. Maybe you did that because it was, it was the number one show on television. Every time I've done that, it's not worked out. I don't, I can't think of a single example where it has. And then all the times where I took a, sh a poorly paying job, 
with a no-name director who I really vibed with and felt good about. It's been great. And it's and it's paid dividends, you know, even in a in a kind of material way, as far as like, oh, it was it was successful. And all those times where I didn't take the opportunity, where I did take the opportunity because I was like, this is like gonna be, you know, it like has all the makings of a success. It's like never panned out. And, I, and it's just, I feel like it's teaching me that like if you're making something you don't believe in with people you don't trust, it's it's never, it just the world's gonna reject it. You know, it's just and if you make something you believe in with people you trust as as small as it is, like the, the world will accept it. It might not be a giant blow-up success, but like it's work I could be proud of. And the people who see that work and resonate with that work and then reach out and connect with me, it's like there's a there's a certain that connection is strong because I think that there's a mutual understanding of of it's like this what I did when I reached out to Kilo Joseph until the quiet comes. I was like, this work is important to me. And I know that I have a feeling that I can connect, you know, not just with the work, but with you and the people that you work with, you know, and that, and I think that that mostly pans out. And I've heard horror stories of that, not people meeting their heroes and the creators who they thought were making the best work. And, and that was sad and it breaks my heart, but I've managed to be pretty lucky in that. And I can't imagine I have, you know, I have a feeling it has to do with that gut thing of just not. I think it has everything to do with that gut thing. I mean, that I think that's the that's the core foundation of all of it. And coming back to kind of the, the central theme of today, I also think that a lot of your decision making and your intuition is against is again based in your values. Because if we looked at two different value systems, if the value system is that I want to tell stories that have a mission, that have a, a voice, that have an impact, you're going to make different decisions as opposed to I value success, I value image, I value material things. If those are your values, you're going to take the big shows, you're going to take the credits, the, the shows that check the boxes, like you said. But because you know who you are, and again, work in progress for all of us, but you have a pretty grounded sense of what your values are, it's easier to say, this just isn't a good fit. So like if we're adding to the, the here's the three-step simple process to develop your intuition, it seems to me one that you're really in touch with is you, you know what your values are as a filmmaker and as a person. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I definitely like, I know it's the same as when you watch something, you know, it's just the feeling of like, no, I don't know. This, this feels wrong to me. Being able to have, like, we can do it with people, you know, we can do it so well externally, I think, of knowing what we like and what we don't like. I say that, but then on the other hand, like, I do know that a lot of my high school crew, like my high school years were me pretending to like stuff I didn't like, you know, to be cool or wear stuff I didn't want to wear. Um, the yeah, I think that we could do it externally so well sometimes that like it's sometimes it feels funny that we can't. It's hard for us to internalize that, you know. The the last thing that I want to go into, which is it's a little bit of a tangent, but not too much of a tangent, but it's certainly the the topic du jour or you know of the year, um, and this will be you know equally as uh, applicable now as it will be in six months, and probably even more applicable in five years. Um, but it's understanding what separates us as humans from technology and from the machines. Because this is a big topic of conversation with the emergence of artificial intelligence. Um, and I've learned, like you uh, have talked about, that 
whatever the ideas are that you put out there, you just go with your gut and your intuition. And if the attention is good, then you want to do your best with those thoughts. And I've also learned that that can get you in really, really big trouble. So I've, I basically have, have uh, uh, swum into shark infested waters talking about artificial intelligence. But what I truly believe is that by and large, as creatives, there are certain things that make us human that separate us from the machines. And to me, one of them is intuition and gut instinct. So I'm curious from your position, I don't know how much you're following any of the, the changes in technology or the industry or whatnot. <laughs> I don't want to get into industry politics, but if we're talking about the sea change that we're seeing as a global society towards artificial intelligence, what are your thoughts about it, given everything we've talked about intuition and, you know, what, uh, what, what fears or, you know, what lack of fears you might have going forwards to this next major step in the creative process? Yeah, it's hard for me to say in an educated way because I think I've been a little willfully ignorant of it. Because, you know, to be honest, I think it, there's a part of me that is scared of it all. But I, I will say that one of the things I value in some of my most exciting moments creatively with myself and with other people have been those very human experiences of, you know, someone comes into work, they had a rough day, their grandmother's sick, they got a bad phone call and they sit down at the computer and they need to get something out of their system. They need to express something that they don't know how to express. And so they make this really beautiful work. Um, or they see a really beautiful moment driving into work between, um, you know, a mother and daughter on the street. And that helps them rethink the way that they've been treating a scene or, or, or want to add something to a montage. And, and those moments, you know, I think are, are so delicate and divine and ear like you can't rep, you can't replicate them. Um, and, and so, when I say delicate, I mean, so fleeting, like if you don't catch them, that person at the right moment, if I don't catch myself at the right moment, there've been times when I've been going through stuff at home and I'll just have to go into the office for a couple hours in the evening and, and do some work because I have, I need to, the best way that I know how to express myself sometimes is through my work. And I, you know, I'll look back on the stuff that I've done and be like, geez, I, you know, I can't, I could never get into that zone again. And so I think that those are the, the moments of humanity that get me excited. And are the reason that I think it's important to work with diverse groups of people and are also the reason why I think it's important to collaborate and not to just be in a silo. So that's kind of all I have to say about it. And I don't know how, you know, AI could replicate those things. I'm sure that AI can do some incredible work, I'm sure, the way that, you know, um, any kind of technology can. And I just hope that, like, we can use it to further. There's a chance that we can use it to further bring out our humanity, right? And 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 use it to illustrate ideas that we just can't, I've never been able to execute before. But I just don't know how that's going to play out. And I haven't educated myself enough to just speak eloquently about it. Uh, I think you spoke a lot more eloquently about it than you might think, because I think what you identified is just the the lightning in a bottle of being a human being, right? Mm -hmm. Which is this idea that I can be in front of the timeline, telling a story on any given day. It could be in front of the blank page, could be composing music, whatever it might be. 
But there's something about the magic of whatever I feel right now because of my outside life experiences without me even realizing it, and maybe I do or maybe I don't, it's subconsciously influencing my intuition and my gut instincts. And you're going to create a different emotion through your work than you might otherwise. That's impossible to replicate. You can even replicate it, you know, like say, well, I felt that way last week. I want to feel the same way this week so I can make the same decisions. Mm-hmm. Even as humans, I don't believe we can replicate that. So that, yeah. that just taps into something really deep, which is the, the more that I learn about the technology, the less concerned I am in certain respects and the more concerned I am in other respects. And I'm not going to go into any of sure. that because that's not the point of the conversation. But you pointed out something that to me is so eloquent and so human, which is just the the the, the miracle that it is to have that feeling for one given moment and apply it to your work and have that emotion exist for eternity. So you're much more eloquent than you might've thought. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, So having said that, I have one last question that kind of ties up where we started, which is this idea of doing everything we can to protect, I'm gonna say work-life balance because that's the way it's understood. I could have an entire full second part just about how I think the term work-life balance is flawed. I'm not Mm. gonna get into TED Talk mode right now. But looking at the the experience that you had with the Daniels on everything, everywhere, all at once, and now post-Oscar win, what have you learned about the challenges of setting boundaries and maintaining work-life balance? Because I would assume it hasn't gotten any easier for you. In some ways it has because people listen to me now more, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's just one of those like society values and accolade. And so if I, I stand less of a risk of losing a job because I won't work a weekend, than I did before. So I'm more mm-hmm. bold in doing that. Protecting that time is easier in some ways too, because I have, you know, my family demands it and not in a, in a negative way, but they, they crave and demand time with me and that. And so I don't, it's, and I'm not saying that this balance is just for people with families. Cause it's not, it's, I wish I had, been, had done this when I was single and childless, but that pull because the four or five months of award stuff was so, I was so far away from family, both physically and mentally, that pull back has been really strong. And so it becomes like such an easy choice for me now and such a guilt-free choice for me. That being said, I think that what I need to work on next is protecting those, the people around me and the people that work with me assistants and other editors, because as much as I, will say, hey, don't stay late. I might also leave at six and say, hey, I need this export to go out to the studio and not not thinking through, like that's a two hour process sometimes. And they had a dinner at seven. And so I think that I, you know, um, practicing what you preach in those ways is is an important lesson for me to learn that I, the, the privileges that I'm getting because of where I'm at right now and because of my insistence on my own balance, don't automatically transfer down to the people around me just because I tell them not to. They still got to do what they got to do, and they and and the same rules sometimes don't apply. And and the the person that can protect them is is me. So that's something that I've been aware of in my of as far as my own shortcomings recently. That being said, like I do, you know, it's easier for me to say uh, when I'm working, I'm working, and when I'm not working, I'm not working. Although I will say. I'm obsessed with my job and, and that leads me to, to, it's fun for me to think about work when I'm not at work. You know, it's fun for me to problem solve in the shower. 
sometimes I'll be in a conversation with my wife and I'll just drift off and she'll be like, you stop thinking about <laughs> the movie. You know? Oh, I can relate so much. You have no idea. Yeah. It's tough. And I, and I get it. Cause I see what she does it to me. I'm like, stop. What are you, why are you so hung up on work? Like this, the conference is next week. Like you just focus. We're at dinner together, you know? And then when she does it to me, I'm like, ah, you know, making so many excuses. So I get it. Um, but yeah, I think that that, you know, the struggle is still very real, but um, the guilt has gone down significantly because I I have recognized just how how valuable to my work it is to come into work fresh and excited and refreshed every day. Also, the caveat that something magical happens creatively, and this is such a bummer. Something magical happens creatively when you are exhausted and you have no other choice but to make a gut choice. And mm-hmm. some of those, if you're not, if you haven't trained your gut to make gut choices, if you stay up till three in the morning and you're exhausted and your deadline is the next day, they'll start happening. And that is is a is the truth. But it's also a bummer for the way that we work. So I guess the solution for that is to just like try to train our guts better to where we don't have to force it out at three in the morning because our brains are shutting down, you know? But yeah. I have definitely like done some incredible work at three in the morning because my literally my brain, the frontal lobe of my brain stopped working as well. And all the instinctual parts of my brain started working. Um, so I'm trying to like, that's the struggle that I'm in. It's like, I don't work nights, but some of my best work is late at night. So like, how do I, how do I grab that? and pull it in or how do i say how do i plan for that in a way that doesn't destroy and upset my family and mess up my plans for the next day when i'm supposed to be refereeing a soccer game with my kid you know what i mean like can you account for both yeah and i'm i could talk about this for hours certainly not going to because i want to be conscious of your time but i'll just kind of end it with um there's plenty of neuroscience that backs this up and the shortest version is think about when you're drunk You'll say anything because all your inhibitions are gone. The prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex is said, no, nah, I don't need to filter everything. All those limiting beliefs, all those fears that are stopping me, gone. When you're exhausted, basically the same thing with a brain. You're just uninhibited making all yeah. these gut instinctual choices. Um, so, yeah, what I'm not going to advocate is, you know, pull a bunch of all-nighters to, to do your best work because, you know, ultimately right. in the long run, that's a stupid idea. But I will give you one really uh, quick trick that I've learned uh, that you can use to access this a little bit more and, like, train it. Um, I believe it was Thomas Edison that does this, and I could be wrong. But essentially what he would do is he would take uh, a nap in the afternoon. But what he would do is he would hold something heavy in his hand. Because if uh, when you hit that point where your brain shuts off, if it's startled awake at that one moment, you get these amazing insights because those inhibitions haven't come back yet. That's funny. So if you just you take like a you know a half hour uh, nap in the afternoon, but hold something so that you as soon as you're you finally let go involuntarily, it jolts you awake, and sometimes you're like, oh my god, that's how to solve this problem. Durr. It's really interesting, interesting. without okay. having to, you know, endlessly pull all-nighters. Yeah, jeez. So I'll give it a shot for sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that way I could geek out on this stuff all day, but yeah, yeah. I want to be tremendously, tremendously respectful of your time and tell you I had very high expectations for it today and you vastly exceeded them. Um, <laughs> I learned you. a lot of really, really cool stuff from our conversation. And it is so clear that you know 
who you are, the work that you want to do, and the impact that you want to make on the world. That's why I wanted to have this conversation. Not because it was, ooh, how cool would it be to get an Oscar winner on my show? <laughs> right. I could, and it's like you said, you put a certain energy out there and it attracted a very, mm-hmm. very similar kind of energy. So this to me was a really important conversation and a valuable one. And I'm glad that everybody that followed you and heard all about everything everywhere all at once and all the things you talked about, I'm glad they get to hear this side too. Cause I love it mm-hmm. when I talk to somebody that's done 40 interviews and they're like, huh, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Yeah, yeah, then yeah. I know we're talking about something <laughs> different. Yeah, well, I appreciated it. I think it's a great, it's a great, uh, you know, mission that you're on for sure. Well, I appreciate that very much. I appreciate your time. And if anybody uh, wants to learn more about your work or connect or anything else, what's what's the best way to find you? Which I know is well, nearly impossible because you've cultivated it to make I it know. almost impossible to connect with you, which, I by like the way, the I very much admire. <laughs> yeah, it's been nice to be as anonymous as possible. Um, the company that I'm a partner in is called Parallax. Our website's parallaxpost.com. That's kind of it. And All even right. that, you know, the website doesn't have our names on it. It just has the work let the work speak for itself. I love it. Well, I'm going to make sure that we send people to Parallax Post. Uh, So Paul Rogers, this has been a tremendous pleasure. Cannot thank you enough for being here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.